Shalom, Shalom. My name is Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. I'm delighted to hear that you are drawn to the Jewish root that supports the grafted in branches. You know, Torah is central to properly understand and perform the will of Hashem, that is, God. It is crucial for us to understand theologically that the primary purpose in Hashem's giving of the Torah as a way of making someone forensically righteous only achieves its goal when the person, by faith, accepts that Yeshua, Jesus, is the promised Messiah spoken about therein. Welcome to the Mikra A Kodesh Holy Convocation Series. I'm the author, Torah teacher Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. Note that all quotations are taken from the complete Jewish Bible translation by David H. Stern. Jewish New Testament publications incorporated unless otherwise noted. The written commentary that we're about to study was updated on October 13th of 2006. Since this is one of the Mikra A Kodesh, let me read my theme verse that I've been utilizing for this series. This is Leviticus 23, verses 1 and 2, which read, Adonai said to Moshe, Tell the people of Israel the designated times of Adonai, which you are to proclaim as holy convocations, are my designated times. Let me also read the Hebrew for you as well. Turn to my Chumash here. Leviticus 23, Pasuk 1 and 2 reads in the Hebrew, Vaidaber Adonai el Moshe lemor, Daber el bnei Yisrael vaamarta alehim, Moade Adonai asher tikro'u otam, Mikra e Kodesh, elehem Moadai. These are the festivals that we have been studying uh, throughout the year. These are the feasts of the Lord. And um, for the most part, we are now at the end of the list. We started at the beginning with Pesach. That was number one. There are seven of them, if you remember. We started with Pesach at number one. Uh, then we moved to number two, which was Hamatzah, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Then we moved to the third festival, which was uh, Umer Rishit, the first sheaf, or waving of the first sheaf. The fourth festival on the list, found in Leviticus 23, was Pentecost, or um, Shavuot. And then we moved to the fifth one on the list, which was Yom Truah, or Rosh Hashanah, uh, the day of the awakening trumpet blast, or head of the year. That was the fifth one. The sixth one on the list was Yom Kippur, which is the Day of Atonement. And then the seventh one on the list is uh, Sukkot, which is the festival of tabernacles, or the festival of uh, ingathering, of which um, the Torah tells us that for this last festival, the number seventh festival, that we uh, celebrate for, well, it's a seven-day festival with a celebration on the first day, and then there's this eighth day of assembly that gets tacked on after the seven-day celebration. 
Thus, the eighth day, in one sense, is its own celebration. But in another sense, it is a part of Sukkot, as it is the eighth day that's tacked onto it. So let's look at um, let's look at Leviticus 23. I want to start in, say, verse 36. Um, actually, let me start in verse 30. Let's go from 33 through 36. Let's go there. Quote, Hashem, and this is, uh, by the way, well, you know what, I should be reading David Stern's version since that's what's in my commentary. Give me a second here. Leviticus 23, uh, what did I say, 33 through 36. Quote, Adonai said to Moshe, Tell the people of Israel, on the fifteenth day of the seventh month is the feast of Sukkot for seven days to Adonai. On the first day is to be a holy convocation. Do not do any kind of ordinary work. For seven days you are to bring in an offering made by fire to Adonai. Now watch this. On the eighth day, this is in verse 36, on the eighth day you are to have a holy convocation and bring an offering made by fire to Adonai. It is a day of public assembly. Do not do any kind of ordinary work. So we see the Torah tells us right there in Pasuk 36 um, that we are to have an eighth day of assembly. Let me turn to the Hebrew here real quick to make sure I've got it right. Yes, Bayom Hashmini. Okay, um, on the eighth day. So as we now look at our commentary, we can see why I entitled it Shmini Atzeret, or Yom Hashmini. Uh, the title Yom Hashmini means the eighth day. Uh, Shmini, uh, Shmini is the Hebrew word for eight. Yom is the Hebrew word for day. And this alternate title, Shmini Atzeret, uh, Shmini meaning eight, and Atzeret is the, is the Hebrew word for a what um, assembly or mass meeting coming together? So the eighth day of assembly. Now this t- this festival is alternately known in rabbinic circles as Simchat Torah, which refers to rejoicing in the Torah. Uh, it's because we're going to find out that on this particular day, the Torah reading cycle comes to an ending, and we're poised also to. Uh, uh, begin a new reading cycle. So, um, Shmini Atzeret, the eighth day of assembly, was the day chosen by uh, the sages to bring the the Torah reading to a cycle. And so with that, we're going to read the final portion of Deuteronomy, uh, and we're going to study that, I mean, rapidly, right, right after this particular study. In fact, I'll probably go ahead and email them out, maybe either back-to-back or maybe with just only one day in between. But historically, we read Parashat Vazot Habracha on this particular festival day as well. So we rejoice that we have finished the Torah cycle and we're ready to turn the Torah over again. We're going to quote from a famous rabbi who has a clever maxim for, to help us remember to do this. We're going to turn the Torah over again in Parashat Vazot Habracha, turn it over again and poise ourselves ready to read from Parashat Bereshit for this coming Shabbat. Okay? So I think it's going to be an interesting study. Now the Torah portion, I'm sorry, the commentary that we're going to study today, the written notes are at least 16 pages long. Uh, so, uh, as, as always, I recommend you go get the notes off of a website, graftedin.com, and print them out for ease of study. Otherwise, the, the, audio, audio, the audio notes that we're studying now, the, the uh, podcasts, with 16 pages, we're probably looking at, I don't know, two hours worth of study. So, uh, buckle in and, and sit down and get ready for uh, an informative study about the Torah. 
This eighth day of assembly is known as Shemini Atzeret, the eighth day of gathering together, because that's what the Torah tells us to do uh, in Pasuk 36, there to get together on the eighth day and have a holy convocation. This eighth day is, is biblically mandated. It was not invented by the rabbis, although the, um, the practice of reading the Torah over and over again is probably influenced by the days of, of Ezra, where he um, uh, publicly read the Torah uh, in, in, from from morning till till mincha till the afternoon, and um, so we see that this sitting in public, sitting and gathering together and, and reading the words of God, is not necessarily a rabbinic invention, so much as it was fueled by the practices that we find in the Torah. But this festival here, this eighth day of assembly, is in fact a biblically mandated assembly time, complete with festivities. You can also look up Numbers chapter 29, verse 35, to see some of the additional details concerning this festival. The eighth day is also known, as I mentioned, as Simchat Torah. Now, technically, Simchat Torah is not one of the biblically prescribed feasts. It's not one of the Mikra'e Kodesh uh, holy convocations out of Leviticus 23. The Torah commands us to observe the eighth day. But tradition has supplied us with the ceremony that we call Simchat Torah. So what is Simchat Torah? I already told you, it's the rejoicing in the law. Why would we rejoice in the Torah? Well, we're going to find out later on. Actually, though, this is kind of interesting. Simchat Torah, as I mentioned, is a rather practical solution to an otherwise semi-mundane chore. Now, according to custom, the final reading of the book of Deuteronomy had just taken place. That's not the semi-mundane chore I'm talking about. Reading the Torah is not the chore. But rather, the book of Deuteronomy had just uh, finished, we just finished reading on a, on a yearly cycle, Vazot HaBrachad, and this is the blessing, that's the Torah portion that we're going to be studying next here. And a reading from the first chapter of the book of Genesis immediately followed, so that the reading is not broken up. We don't have any days or two. Well, we may have a few days between the reading of Vazot HaBracha and Parashat Bereshit, but generally speaking, we don't have a lengthy time. The, the idea is to try, to try and make an unbroken cycle between the um, ending of the reading in Deuteronomy and the beginning of the reading in Genesis. So what we had is um, a reading from the first chapter of the book of Genesis immediately following uh, the reading from Deuteronomy. The Torah scroll, if you remember, needed to be re-rolled to facilitate another year's worth of reading and study. Now, consider this, a Torah scroll, it's rather large, and it's rather fragile. Much work was involved in re-rolling a Torah scroll. It was no easy task, rolling it from Deuteronomy back over to, to Genesis. So the rabbis, uh, at some point in time, decided to turn this time of re-rolling the scroll, which you don't want to do it too fast, it could take a while. I mean, we're talking about if a, if a synagogue does not have two scrolls. These days, synagogues that have a Torah scroll have more than one. One is already opened up to the passage in Deuteronomy, and then the second scroll is already opened up to the um, uh, portion in Genesis. However, not every uh, synagogue can afford this luxury, since Torah scrolls are quite costly. Um, so the rabbis decided to turn this time into a reason to rejoice, where we have to roll the scroll over. We have gracefully completed another complete reading of God's Holy Torah. Let's let's turn this into a time to rejoice. And as was the tradition since before the Common Era, the yearly cycle of reading was completed and restarted at this time also. Now, also keep in mind that um, earlier on, Judaism recognized two reading schedules. We had one that was a triennial, a three-year reading schedule, uh, and then we had one which is an annual. And the one that most 
Juda- most of Judaism follows today is the annual one where we cycle through the Torah from Genesis through Deuteronomy in one year's time. There are some communities who still tr- follow the triennial where they're doing it once every three years. But either way, they're going to have to re-roll their Torah scroll. So they, they ha- also have their own Shmini Atzeret. The root word Samach, um, from which we get the title um, Simchat Torah, the root word of Simchat is Samach. Uh, it means to rejoice, according to Brown Driver uh, and Briggs uh, just and Jesenius Lexicon, the BDB. Uh, you can see my footnote to number one there. Simchat means to rejoice. And so that's where we get the word uh, you know, rejoicing in the Torah. Let's look at the top of page two. There's a, a Talmudic quote here out of the tractate. Um, it's actually uh, an addition to a tractate. Known as, uh, the tractate isn't called Pirkei Avot, Sayings of the Fathers. Rather, Pirkei Avot is, is tacked on to the end of, I believe, tractate Sanhedrin. And so in um, Pirkei Avot, which is a very, very beloved section of the Talmud, we find a clever rabbi's maxim so that we can remember uh, that uh, the Torah needs to be read and reread, and this rabbi has a very um, uh, humorous uh, nickname. The rabbis ended up with nicknames based on their first, middle, and last name, like uh, Rabbi So and So, son of So and So, and they would form ac- uh, um, what we say acronyms or whatever according to their name, like Rashi's Rashi, the the famous commentator. His his name isn't Rashi. It's the R-A stands for Rabbi, the S-H stands for um, Shlomo, and the last I stands for um, Isaac, Rabbi Solomon Isaac, or Rabbi uh, Shlomo Yitzhaki. So thus the acronym R-A-S-H-I, from which we get Rashi, or Rashi. Okay? This particular um, uh, rabbi that I want to quote from, <laughs> his name was Son of, and then his name was Bagbag, B-A-G, B-A-G, or it looks like Bagbag, Bin Bagbag, Bin Bagbag. So let's make a uh, quote from Pirkei Avot, since it bears, uh, I think it's quite appropriate for this particular Torah study, or the top of page two. I'll, let me go ahead and read the Hebrew for you, um, and then I'll read the uh, the English translation. The Hebrew reads, Ben Bagbag Omer, Hafokba Vahafokba, Diholaba, Uva Techeze. Vesiv uvleva umina la tetsua she'en lecha mida tova he mena. The English reads, Ben Bagbag said, Turn it, the Torah, over and turn it over and over again and again, for everything is in it. Study it thoroughly. Grow old and gray in its study. Do not stir from it, for you can have no better measure than this, end quote. You know, like so many other practices in Judaism, the rabbis have also standardized the suggested reading schedule for this particular minor festival. The The usual verses, the usual pasukim, as I mentioned, uh, is Parashat Vazot Habracha, which is Deuteronomy 33, Pasuk 1 through Pasuk 34, uh, I'm sorry, through Parak 34, Pasuk 12. That's Deuteronomy 33, chapter Let's try that again. Deuteronomy chapter 33, verse 1 through chapter 34, verse 12. But also read Genesis 1, 1 through 2, 3. Include Numbers 29, 35 through 31. And um, also read Joshua 1, 
verses 1 through 18. Now, if you have a complete Jewish Bible translation by David H. Stern, he also recommends the following portions from the New Covenant, the Brit Chadashah, the Apostolic Scriptures, the New Testament. He recommends Matthew chapters 5 through 7, especially 5, 17 through 20, Mark 12, 38 through 34, Romans chapters 7 through 8, and then he recommends uh, Revelation chapter 21, verse 1 through chapter 22, verse 5. So as far as the reading schedule is concerned, I want to break with tradition and midrashically look at um, Pasuk uh, 2 Timothy 2.15. Okay? Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly divided in word of truth. We want to study the Torah today, and we want to rightly divide it. So we're going to talk about these particular topics. Let me just look down through my commentary. We're going to talk about the written Torah today. Torah Shabiktav. We are going to talk about how the written Torah um, is composed. Uh, two forms of the legal code in the Torah, the uh, casuistic and the apodictic. We're going to look at those. We're going to look at the oral Torah today, the Torah Shiva'al Pei, or the Torah from the mouth. We're going to have a lengthy quote from Mishnah. And then we're going to talk about the summary of the purposes of the covenants that are found in the Torah. That's the covenant with Abraham and the covenant with Moshe. And then finally, we're going to be talking about Shomer Mitzvot, keeping the Torah. And within that section of Shomer Mitzvot, we'll talk about the topic of conversion. Is it required for non-Jews? Because this is an important topic, both for the first century as well as for the 21st century. Um, We'll look at views of the Torah today. Um, Is the Torah to be viewed as negative? Is it to be viewed as neutral? Or is it to be viewed as positive? Again, given the um, traditions that we um, that we encounter within tr- Christian camps and Judaic camps, we can understand why such a discussion, Torah negative, neutral, or positive, becomes relevant for our study today. And then finally, um, when we get down near page 14 of our study or so, we will talk about the conclusion to this particular study, our response to the Torah, whether it's negative, neutral, or positive, and how we approach it. Okay? So again, this will be a very well-rounded look at the Torah and some of the main features that show up in the Torah. Because of that, and its centrality to um, our lives today, as both Christians and Jews, then much of the information that is in this particular study to Parash, or to uh, Chag Shmini Atzeret is going to show up in other studies as well. It's going to span the scope of many of my commentaries um, down through the five books of Moses because the information, more or less, that we're talking about today is a distillation or a compilation of our study and our appreciation of the Torah itself. So, again, I'll draw from previous commentaries or if you want to look at it the other way around, it will will have information that's in this study that's going to um, show up in uh, future studies if you're starting with Genesis. Okay, so for now let's start on the top of page two, and let's start with um, let's start with this idea of showing ourselves approved unto God. But let's define the word Torah and find out um, how we understand our roles. Uh, in the covenants that God outlines for us in the Torah. Um, the way I see it, in Hashem's order, accept, acceptance from Hashem is really based on identity. There's a very huge question that basically the Torah presumes that we have to ask ourselves. Who are we? 
So I can ask the question to you, my listeners. Who are you? Who are you? Are you a genuine and lasting covenant member? Do you know God? More importantly, does God know you? You see, before the Torah can make any sense to you, this question has to be asked first. This question is of great significance to the Jewish people, firstly or specially, but it's equally important to the Gentile. And of course, I'm taking that near quote from Romans 1.16, the latter half there. God gave his words to Israel. Israel, of course, is primarily uh, comprised of native-born sons of Jacob, thus sons of Israel. But the mystery being hidden from Israel down through the ages for the first 1,500 years of her history was that the Gentiles were to be included in Israel at a later date and in mass. Thus, who are you bears a first significance to the Jew, but equally, as we mentioned, to the Gentile. So, are we covenant members? Do we know God? Does God know us? Now, if you are Jewish, you're listening to my commentary today, if you're Jewish... Must you leave Judaism and embrace Christianity and the church to be accepted by Hashem? How's that for a, 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 um, a kicker question, an opening question? If you're Jewish, do you have to leave Judaism and embrace Christianity in order for God to know you? I could rephrase the question a different way. If you're a Jew, do you have to leave Judaism to be saved? Is Judaism a dead religion? Is Judaism worthless to you once you embrace Jesus as the Messiah? It's an interesting question, no? Let's turn the question around. Let's turn it the direction from the Jews looking at the Gentiles. If you are non-Jewish, must you convert to Judaism before God will extend covenant membership to you? Do you see how I phrased the question there now? If you are a non-Jew, if you're a Gentile, must you convert to Judaism before God will accept you into his covenant. The reason I asked the questions the way I did, and we're going to find out a little later on in my study how important these questions are, but let me just give you a little teaser now. The reason I asked the questions is in the way I did is because in the first century, the dilemma facing the social setting, that is to say the Judaisms of the first century, was how does God include Gentiles into the covenant? How does he extend genuine and a lasting covenant membership to non-Jews? That was the big question in the first century that the uh, Judaisms sought desperately to figure out. They came up with some of their own solutions, but ultimately it was the issue that divided them and that eventually um, caused them to uh, to break up and to reject any new form of, of religion known as Christianity. But what's interesting by historical um, reality, or historical, I should really say, um, historical irony, is that in our 21st century religious communities uh, defined by Christianity, the real question is, can you be a genuine follower of Jesus and still be a Jew? In other words, can you embrace Judaism with all of its um, Torah specifics and still embrace Jesus the Messiah? Modern Judaism would say no to that question. You can't be a Jew and a Christian at the same time. Interestingly enough, many modern Christian scholars would also answer in the negative. It's not really possible to embrace Judaism and Jesus at the same time. We cannot be um, uh, 
oh, we can't be followers of both religions, both Judaism and Christianity. We must make a decision between one or the other. That's why I chose uh, this particular introduction to the this study, um, talking the way that I'm I'm talking. It is a big question. Who are you? Are you Jewish? Are you a Gentile? Are you a covenant member? Does it matter whether you're Jewish or Gentile? These are very important questions. A study of the Torah will reveal the identity of both Jew and non-Jew. That's where we get the definitions. I'm sorry, that's where we are going to find the truest identity that we can have. I can tell you up front right now that our identity, whether Jewish or Gentile, should be squarely rooted, firmly grounded in the Messiah Yeshua. But I can also tell you surprisingly that once we embrace Messiah Yeshua, we do not cease being whatever we were before we found Messiah. If you're a Jew and you embrace Yeshua, you, you continue being Jewish. Conversely, if you were born of non-Jewish heritage, lineage, you know, family clan, and you embrace Jesus as the Messiah, does it, that does not automatically make you a Jew. It may make you Hebraic in some way, especially if you go on to embrace the Hebraic lifestyle. I suppose using the term Hebraic is accurate. But calling yourself a Jew is not entirely accurate. In fact, it's not even necessary. To be sure, misunderstanding who you are according to the Torah can have detrimental results. We're going to find this out later on as well. So what I want to do is I want to start by briefly examining the meaning of the word Torah and its implied definitions. We're going to be studying the Torah today, right? Look at my paper on the middle of page 2, and um, when, we, when we get to the top of page 3, you'll see that there is more or less five definitions to this word Torah that I'm going to be working with. Definition, Torah, and you'll see the Hebrew written there as well. Torah can be defined as law, direction, or instruction, according to the BDB. Um, it stems from the root Hebrew word yara, which means to shoot an arrow or to hit the mark. Look at my footnotes to number two and three, respectively, from the uh, BDB to the words Torah and yara. Yara is an archery term, properly used when we are talking about Torah itself. Properly used, the word Torah should invoke the meaning of the teaching or the instruction, okay? Instruction, God's instruction, God's teaching. What I'm trying to avoid is the common definition of the Torah uh, with law. Law can sometimes stir up um, pejorative feelings, especially within traditional Christianity. Now, it never stirs up pejorative feelings within traditional Judaism. But unfortunately, with the 2,000 years of bias that the Christian church uh, carries within themselves, looking at the Torah negatively, I'm trying to avoid that definition. It does mean law, but it, it, it does not firstly mean law. Okay, I mean, law is part of its usage. It's part of its nuance. But um, when you hear the word Torah, you should really be thinking instruction, and more importantly, God's instruction. Now, I've stated this concept elsewhere in my commentaries, um, but it is helpful to repeat it here. Let me just state this, right? In fact, I basically say this at the beginning or at the ending of uh, each Torah portion, each podcast that I uh, broadcast. I believe that it is crucial for us to understand, and when I say us, I mean believers and non-believers, okay? Jew and Gentile. I believe that it is crucial for us to understand theologically that the primary purpose in Hashem's giving of the Torah, not only to Israel, but ultimately to humanity, 
his his giving of the Torah as a way of making someone saved, forensically righteous. It only achieves its goal when the person by faith accepts that Yeshua is the promised Messiah spoken about within the pages of the Torah. You see, the goal that the Torah aims towards is faith in Messiah. Or as David Stern puts it, uh, quoting Romans 10.4, the goal at which the Torah aims is the Messiah. Jesus is the goal of the law. Okay, So that's why I state uh, uh, what I said the way I said it. Um, we must understand that this is the goal of the Torah. And until the individual, whether he's Jewish or Gentile, doesn't matter, until the individual reaches this conclusion that Jesus is the Messiah, then the familiarity of the Torah, whether he's Jewish or Gentile, is um, it's only going to provide so much intellectual nutrition for an individual. You understand what I'm saying here? The Torah is is going to accomplish its goal when the person places their faith in Jesus. But until then, it's only going to provide so much uh, intellectual nutrition. It will allow a person to make halakha, to make uh, informative decisions concerning life. But ultimately, until the person accepts Yeshua, surrenders to the Messiah found in the pages of the Torah, well then the person is not going to reach the goal that God intended for this individual. Thus the person is going to uh, you know, die at the end of life and not be reborn. Uh, there will be nothing awaiting him uh, at the end of his existence. Only separation from God. So only by believing in Yeshua will the person be able to properly understand Hashem and consequently uh, properly understand the word of God. Okay, Is everyone on the same sheet of music with me so far? Let me just continue reading down through the middle of page 3, and then at about 30 minutes we should call this part A. All right. In a broad sense, Torah, then, is the revelation of Hashem to his people. In a very broad sense, it is God's self-disclosure. The word of God is the revelation of God to all men. You understand how the Torah, then, uh, functions for both Jews and Gentiles. Now, within this framework the revelation of God, and depending on the context, we can break down five basic categories of what the word Torah can mean. Look at my notes here. Number one, Torah can mean the five books of Moshe. Okay, that's what I call the Torah proper. But number two, we can take that definition of number one and include number two, that, plus the proper uh, the prophets and the writings. Sometimes that's what Torah means. It means the five books of Moshe plus the prophets and the writings. But added to that, we can keep building on this notion. Number three, we can take number one and two and say that number three is that plus the oral Torah, which includes the Talmud and the later legal writings. Now, of course, this would be a standard Judaic view of Torah. But number four, we could now keep building on that. We could say one, two, and three plus all religious teachings from the rabbis. That's what the word Torah can also mean, depending on the context. Of course, again, that's probably a standard Judaic answer. Look at number five, however. We could take one through four and take all of that as understood and interpreted in light of what Yeshua the Messiah and the rest of the New Covenant Scriptures, the rest of the Apostolic Scriptures, the, the latter Ketuvim, the, um, the, the, the New Testament, what it is what it says about 1 through 4. And that's really definition number 5. In case you're wondering, for the most part, in my commentaries and for this particular study today, we will be using definitions 1, 2, and 5. If I were having a, a very localized Judaic study where I was focusing on um, traditional Judaism, I would probably focus on definitions number 3 and 4 as well. Now, according to God's Torah, there are at least... 
there are more than this, but there are at least two very important covenants that both Jews and Gentiles need to understand. I'm just going to talk about them briefly, um, and I'll hit them later on when I make a quote from uh, Torah Rediscovered by Arl Devor Berkowitz. Uh, bullet point number one, we need to understand that there is a covenant with Abraham. We call this the Abrahamic covenant, or in Hebrew, the Avrahamic covenant. You can look up Genesis tw- uh, 12, 2 and 3, as well as uh, chapter 13, verses 14 through 18 of Genesis, chapter 15 of Genesis, chapter 17, uh, verses 9 through 14 of Genesis. Look up Matthew 1, 1 through 16, Romans chapter 4, and look up Galatians 3, 16 through 18. The second covenant that bears a um, a, a most important uh, look that that we can uh, um, uh, really study, but I'm, I, I can't be comprehensive today. Uh, let me just introduce it briefly. Is of course the Mosaic covenant, the covenant with Moses. We say Mosaic. Um, this is alluded to in Exodus 34:27, Deuteronomy 29:1, Psalm chapter 119, Matthew 5:17 through 20, Matthew 23:1 through 3. And then um, you can look at Acts twenty-one nineteen through twenty-six. Now, uh, again, the Mosaic and the Abrahamic covenant are very, very important covenants. We're going to talk about these later on. Right now, I'm just introducing them briefly in my introduction. Let me ask one more question before we move into a second section and probably break this off, call it Part A, and, and then be poised at Part B uh, uh, for our look at the written Torah. Let me ask one more question: How shall we? As Jews and Gentiles understand our roles in such in, in these covenants, how are we to understand what God expects of us uh, as we read and study His words, especially as we encounter the Abrahamic and the Mosaic covenant? They are very important covenants, to be sure. They are really the foundational covenants um, that we find within the Bible. And so, how are we to relate to them? How do we understand what God expects of us? Before we answer this important question, we're going to turn our attention to a somewhat comprehensive examination of the Torah and its components. Um, Such an examination, I believe, is going to lay the necessary framework needed to understand our roles to those questions, okay? So we're going to provide an an authoritative answer of sorts to these two questions, or to these two covenants and the questions that I raised, uh, near the end of my commentary. But for now, let's go ahead and call this Part A, and when we return to my commentary to um, Shemini Atzeret, we're going to start near the top of, or I'm sorry, near the bottom of page 3, with a paragraph entitled, Written Torah, Torah Shibiktav, okay? So stay with us.